He could recite the alphabet and count before he was one year old. At two years old, he was reading the Times newspaper and learning to speak Mandarin. Now he can speak four languages and play the violin. In a recent newspaper report, his mother said, he is also learning Hebrew. He started that because he wanted to read the Bible in its original version. Matthias Hoffmann Wagenheim has an IQ of 152 and is one of the youngest members of Mensa at the age of six. Now, remarkable though that is, there are some things which six-year-olds can never grasp. There is one lesson which can only be learned through years of experience, of hard experience. And it's a lesson which many 66-year-olds, even members of Mensa, have never learned. But one man, a special messenger of Jesus called Paul, claimed to have learned this lesson and he describes how he learned it in this letter he wrote to the Christians in the Greek city of Philippi. We've been studying this letter over this past year under the title, Shining Like Stars. For in this letter, Paul the author challenges the Philippian Christians and us, if we claim to be Christians, to be conspicuous for Christ. To shine like stars in the universe against the dark background of the society in which we live. And one of the ways in which we show our difference is in learning this particular lesson, a lesson to be learned, which we find in Philippians 4, 10 to 13, the verses that Mike read for us. That will help to have the Bible in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews, and it's on page 1181. Page 1181, Philippians 4. We're just going to be looking this morning at these four verses, verses 10 to 13 of chapter 4. Now, first of all, let's state what is this lesson. The lesson is being content in any and every situation. Being content in any and every situation. Now, this lesson is a distinctively Christian lesson. Yet, not all Christians have learned it. Even Paul did not learn it immediately, he became a Christian. He only learned it from experience, from hard experience. Now look carefully at what it says in verse 11. Paul writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now the word translated learn there is a general word for learning information or facts. The acquisition of knowledge. But in verse 12, Paul uses a different word, which our translation in the Pew Bibles and the New International Version translates it with a phrase, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. This word, it's just one word in the original, learn the secret, is a very interesting word. 
It's a word that comes from Greek mystery religions. The Greeks had these special religions that they called mysteries. And you only learn them by acquiring them through different levels of experience until finally you arrived at the final end which was knowing the mystery itself. Alec Matir in his Bible Speaks Today commentary on Philippians uh, paraphrases what Paul says in verse 12. I have made my way up through the degrees of progressive detachment from the things of the world in comforts and discomforts alike and I finally reached maturity on this point. I know the secret. Circumstances can never again touch me. And Matthias comments, Thus contentment is the mark of the mature believer, an objective to be cultivated by all believers who want to grow in Christ, who had nowhere to lay his head. So, what we want to look at this morning is, how did Paul learn this lesson? And wouldn't you and I certainly like to be able to learn this lesson too? To be able to learn how to be content in any and every situation. Whatever life throws at us, to remain content. Let's look more closely then at these four verses. Now I want to suggest, for ease of understanding, and because I like points and it's my way of thinking, and if it helps you, I hope you'll follow it. If not, just disregard it, but try and get the content out of this. I want to suggest there are three parts in this lesson. All right? Here's the first one, which we could call Christian Concern. You find that in verses 10 to 11. Now, Paul was in prison in Rome. Prison in the first century was not a pleasant experience. All that the authorities provided was the accommodation, which you couldn't get out of. It was up to your friends to bring in food and water and clothing and anything else you might need. And a prisoner on trial for his life for treason before the state of Rome would often find that any friends he had were scarce or made themselves scarce. But when the Christians in faraway Philippi learned that Paul, the founder of their church, was in prison in Rome, they were moved to action, sending one of their members, a man with the long name of Epaphroditus, with a gift for Paul on this long and dangerous journey. We saw that earlier in this letter, Paul had written about Epaphroditus and his sacrificial spirit. He almost lost his life in this mission. Chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. All of these are on the web if you want to listen to the messages on these or you can get tapes from the tape library. But it's only now, right at the close of this letter, and we only have, I think, two more to go next week and the week after, that Paul mentions the gift which Epaphroditus brought for the Philippians. And even then he doesn't actually describe it as a gift until the next paragraph. Some people have been very critical of Paul here. They've described Philippians as a thankless thank you letter. You imagine if you were in prison and someone from far away, some friends, sent a gift over many miles and you were writing back to them. Surely you would start off by saying, thank you so much for your gift that came. It was such a great encouragement to me. We'd have made it the main subject of the opening paragraph. 
But this reveals our lack of understanding, not just between the difference between letters written in the first century and what we would write in the 21st century, but more fundamentally of what was really important to Paul and should be important to us. What encouraged Paul most of all and helped him as he sought to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, even in prison on trial for his life, was not just the gift that the Philippians sent, but what lay behind it. Look how he describes his response to the gift from the Philippians. It's a response of great joy. Verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. We've seen that joy is one of the recurring themes in this letter to the Philippians. And this time it's a phrase, great joy. It's interesting if you look at how this phrase is found in the New Testament and other places. It is always used of something remarkable that God has done. The response of a person or people to something remarkable that God has done. For example, it's the response of people to the coming of Jesus. Good news, says the angel, of great joy for all people. It's the response of the disciples at the end of the story of Jesus when he returns to heaven. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Luke 24, 52. In the book of Acts, there is great joy in the city of Samaria when people respond to the powerful preaching of Philip the Evangelist. Acts 8, verse 8. And when the church in Jerusalem hears about the marvellous conversion of the Gentiles, they are very glad. Acts 15, verse 3. So what is it that prompts such great joy in the heart of Paul here in this verse? Which causes him to rejoice greatly in the Lord. Look what it says. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Now the word concern is another word that we've found several times in this letter. And again it's a lovely word. It's a word related to your mind or your attitude, what drives you and impels you. It's the same word used, if you've got the Bible open, just turn back, you'll remember the verses, if you know Philippians well, uh, where Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What concerns you should be what concerned him. In the older version of the Bible, it says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. It's to do with your attitude. So, what is it that causes such great joy, prompted by what God has done? It is the attitude of the Philippians. It's seen in their attitude. But concern is not limited just to the mind. No, it's concern which leads to action. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. What was it, that Christ Jesus was in heaven? and thought kind thoughts about us. No, his mind, his attitude, his love for the world, moved him into action. So he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in the case of the Philippian Christians, Paul is so happy because he can see that the gospel message, the good news of Jesus that he preached to these Christians in Philippi, has affected the way they think about things. So as soon as they hear that Paul is in trouble, they are motivated, they are moved to action by sending Epaphroditus, by sending this gift. It is demonstrated in the gift. Look again at what he says in chapter 4 and uh, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. The word renewed there is used of a bush or a tree that puts out fresh shoots in springtime. As though Paul is writing, 
your concern for me has blossomed. And the visible blossom is this gift that they've sent. And Paul hastens to add that the fact that they didn't send a gift before, he wasn't thinking that they weren't concerned about him. No, he says, as soon as you heard about me, you responded, you sprang into action. Your attitude blossomed into life. Now, the application of this is obvious, it's so obvious that we can just skip over it by taking it as given. But let's just pause for a moment, think about what he's actually saying here. If we have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, if the gospel is indeed at work, has taken root in our lives, then it will produce fruit which is seen in action. If it isn't, then there's no life. The seed of the gospel has not germinated in our lives and it's all pretense, it's all just what we say. It's seen in practical action, in how we love one another and express that in action. In his first letter, the Apostle John reiterates this point again and again. Here's just one example of love in action. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, Great. Stop there. But, here's the application. Here's the love in action. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, doesn't do anything about it, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, he says, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. You see, Christian concern is always costly in time, in money, in energy, emotional, so often, in relationships. But it is the only sure proof that the love of God is in us, that we respond immediately. Let me say as a pastor, I was just so encouraged. You remember the tsunami, the last great disaster in January? We simply said in this church, and it's good to give thanks to God that God prompted us to action. We immediately said in this church, there'll be boxes at the doors if you want to give anything. Within two weeks, £20,000 came in that we sent off to help with relief in that area. A few weeks ago, Josephine Montali shared with us about the need in Malawi of the many thousands of orphans through AIDS and said she was looking to get a four-wheel drive vehicle to help with this project. I didn't tell you this, but she actually said it'd be wonderful if the chapel could give something towards you. Maybe you could manage 500 pounds. And we said again, we'll put boxes at the doors. If you want to help, that'd be great. 6,000 pounds came in. It's love in action. It's putting the gospel into practice. It's seeing the need of brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, I've got more than they have. I can afford it. Even if I can't afford it, I will give sacrificially to help those in need. Now I simply say to you as one of the pastors of this church, as we look around at our brothers and sisters, those in need, let us not just love in word, sing about loving one another. When we see need, let's respond and put it into action. And when you're in that kind of fellowship, which we want to generate, encourage, develop, then you, it's a wonderful aid in helping you to be content in every, in every situation, because no matter what happens, you belong to a great family of people who share with you in this. What an encouragement to us. Then you can really rejoice in the Lord. 
But notice again, it's not just a gift that brings Paul such joy. In fact, he goes on to write and says, I can actually survive without the gift. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So we move from Christian concern to the second part of the lesson, specifically, secondly, that of Christian contentment. Look at verse 12. Back in 1957, some of you are old enough to remember that, Prime Minister told us that the people of Britain had never had it so good. Fifty years on, things are even better. And yet, increased prosperity has not brought with it increased contentment, has it? We live in an age of discontent. Sinclair Ferguson, Scottish uh, pastor and teacher, writes, Christians today live in a society which is permeated by a spirit of discontentment. Greed has destroyed gratitude. Getting has replaced giving. For many people, the more they have, the more they want. Believing that material things can bring satisfaction. Now, of course, if you're a Christian, you don't believe that. You believe with Paul, as he wrote to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. But are we really content? Let me simply ask you this morning. Are you content with your lot? Are you content with your spouse? Or lack of? Are you content with your family? Your home? Your car? Your job? Your church? And even if we claim to be content today... Is there anything you can envisage which would change your mind, which would make you discontented? Hard to tell really, isn't it, until it actually happens. Paul claims, no matter what happens, nothing can disturb his equanimity, for he has learned the secret of contentment in all situations. Look what he says in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, in this verse, Paul describes the extremes of circumstances that he encountered and that we can encounter. First and most obviously, there are what we could call the attacks or the arrows of adversity. He talks about being in need, hungry, in want. The word translated to be in need is the same word used in chapter 2, verse 8 of Jesus, to be brought low. And like his master, Paul has experienced what it means to be brought low. In his second letter to the Christians in Corinth, he describes his experiences responding to the claims of so-called super-apostles who claim to be above all the problems of life and just live on a different planet. He writes this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I have more. This is how he describes his experience as an apostle. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Then he concludes, I have laboured and toiled. I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. 
Yet, it is in this school of adversity that he has learned the secret of being content. Not grumbling against God, but rejoicing in the Lord. The old commentator Matthew Henry writes, I've often stuck in my mind this when I read it many, many years ago. I'm sure I've quoted it before. He writes, of those who when they were full enjoyed God in all, can, when they are emptied, enjoy all in God. Let me repeat that. It's worth remembering if you've got a kind of mind that can remember those things. Those who, when they were full, enjoyed God in all, can, when they are emptied, enjoy all in God. See, the Philippians knew this only too well from Paul's experience. For it was in Stotts in their town jail that with bleeding backs, Paul and his companion Silas sang praises to God at midnight. Acts 16, verse 25. So, what about you and me? I'm ashamed to say, it's often comparatively small things that shape my equanimity, that kind of throw me off course. What does it take to disturb our equanimity, to turn our contentment to complaint. Who knows, in a church of this size, if we went through the circumstances that we've encountered, even this very week, maybe something has done just that. Something has happened in your life. Someone said something. Something happened at work. A letter in the post. A visit to the doctor. Whatever it might be. It may seem small or it may loom large on the horizon. Whatever it is, have we learned the secret of being content in any and every situation? But Paul doesn't just describe the bad things that can challenge our contentment. He also mentions the seemingly good things that can have the same effect. What we could call the perils of prosperity. He talks about having plenty, well-fed, living in plenty. To have plenty means to overflow. The word is used in Matthew's Gospel in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember all those hungry people? And Jesus fed them by a great miracle. At the end it said they were satisfied. They had plenty. Nobody still had an empty stomach or could eat any more. In fact, they gathered all those baskets full of what was left over. Now Paul says, that's also been my experience from time to time. I've not always been in need. There have been times when I've had plenty. But why should such positive experiences threaten his contentment, threaten our contentment. Surely, when we have plenty, we'll be satisfied. But the danger is that when we have plenty, we come to rely on the things rather than the gifts, rather than the giver. And when we place our reliance on them, and it's such a subtle shift, we then begin to place our confidence in things, in gifts, rather than the giver. And we discover they cannot really satisfy. And so instead of going back to the giver, we seek more gifts. It's a salutary lesson that Jesus spoke frequently, probably more frequently than almost anything else, about the danger of riches. How hard it was for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. The primary reason, I believe, perhaps the only reason why God gives riches to some people is so that they might be generous with those in need. But prosperity is a dangerous gift. You see, adversity can tend to just blow us away. Something happens. 
But I believe the greater danger is prosperity, because in prosperity we're not blown away, we drift away from God. We have plenty. And certainly those things become idols in our lives. Maybe there's someone here this morning, you're doing really well. Got the job you dreamed of. The family you dreamed of. The home you dreamed of. And you've come to rely on those things instead of God. And you're not really content despite all that. The prayer of the wise author of the book of Proverbs, I think, puts it well. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. He says to the Lord, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So this is the second thing, Christian contentment. But we still haven't exactly discovered how. What is the secret of how Paul could be content in any and every situation? He tells us in the next verse, which focuses on Finally, Christian confidence. Verse 13. Now, the word content in these verses is found only here in the New Testament. But when the Philippians got this letter, they would know exactly what Paul was talking about because the word content was one of the buzzwords of Greek society. It was the key word used among those who followed the teaching of the Stoics who were adherents to Stoicism. Uh, Many Roman statesmen were attracted to this philosophy and teaching, such as Seneca, who wrote that the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Now this, you think, this sounds like Paul. Reconciled to your circumstances, content with your present lot. But there is a radical difference between Stoicism and Christianity. For the Stoic... The way that you were able to be content in all circumstances was through self-sufficiency. Here's one of their quotes. Man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to restrict the force of circumstances. But for Paul, the secret of being content in all circumstances was not a matter of self-sufficiency but what we could call Christ-sufficiency. Here's this key verse. I can do everything through him, that is Christ, who gives me strength. Now, this is one of the best known verses in the Bible, certainly in Philippians. But it's often quoted in isolation and out of context to mean that Christians can do almost anything that they want and everything through Christ. Think of a well-known professional footballer who was a Christian So on the television, he scored a great goal and as he ran round the goal afterwards, he pulled off his shirt and underneath was written Philippians 4.13 and you ask, how did he score such a great goal? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, of course Christ gives us strength to do anything. All that we do is through the strength that Christ gives us but it doesn't literally mean that otherwise why didn't he score a goal either every week and then they'd win the league? This is not what Paul is talking about here. The everything refers back to the previous verse. Any and every, same word, situation, of which is just written. One commentator, Peter O'Brien, paraphrases it as follows. I am strong enough for all these circumstances in union with him, that is Christ, who strengthens me. If you are a Christian, your true security, 
Your strength lies in your relationship with Jesus Christ. One in which, as Mike explained so well to the children, no matter how many circumstances occur, however bad or good, nothing can change them. Sinclair Ferguson comments helpfully again. For Paul, contentment is not found in creating our own security, but in abandoning our security to Jesus Christ. And it's in adverse circumstances, when things go wrong, that we discover our weakness. It's in adverse circumstances that we discover that we don't have the strength to cope with this. Maybe you're like that this morning. Circumstances have overwhelmed you and you think, I've got, not got the strength to face this. But in union with Christ, in your weakness, you will prove Christ's strength in a way that you would not have proved it had life just gone on an even keel with no demands on your own resources. In another of his letters, that Second Corinthians we referred to before, the Apostle Paul describes... Um, in chapter 12, how he had an amazing spiritual experience. He said it was so out of this world, he couldn't even describe it, it was so wonderful. Then he said to counterbalance that, he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, which brought him low. Three times he pleaded with the Lord and said, Lord, take it away. But the answer he received from the Lord was that this is the way you will prove my strength, power in your weakness. These are wonderful verses, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a fundamental a basic lesson of Christian living. Do you want to learn how to be content in every and every situation? Then allow God to send you adverse circumstances in which you will prove his strength in a way that you never prove them through prosperity. And this security is an eternal security for even what the world regards as the worst possible circumstances. What's the worst possible circumstances? Death. Cannot break that relationship with Christ. So Paul assures the Christians in Rome, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We consider the sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, Neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I simply ask you this morning, do you have that assurance? Is that your conviction? Can you say, I am convinced? Are you a victim of circumstances? Or are you a victor over circumstances? Are you a stoic, maybe under another name, a pessimist, a fatalist? Or are you a Christian? Do you know what it is to have Christ's strength living within you, energizing you by his Holy Spirit, so that even in your weakness, no matter what may happen this week, you can prove Christ's strength in all things. I can do all things, face all things, through Christ who gives me strength. Almost finished. 
This is the lesson to be learned, the secret of being content in any and every situation. And I began by saying this is a distinctively Christian lesson, yet not all Christians have learned it. So, most of us here would claim to be Christians. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, have we learned this lesson of being content in any and every situation? And if so, how can you tell? Let me conclude with an illustration which I borrowed from Warren Wisby, the American pastor and teacher's little book uh, on Philippians called Be Joyful. And he describes in it two kinds of Christians. So let me ask you, what kind of Christian are you? He says, some Christians are like a thermometer. Now, a thermometer doesn't change anything around it. It simply registers the temperature around it. Rising or falling. And some Christians are like that. Their emotions, their responses to life, rise and fall with the joys and sorrows they encounter. They're controlled by the circumstances of life. But there is another kind of Christian. Are you a thermometer? Maybe not. Are you a thermostat? Unlike a thermometer, a thermostat doesn't change anything according to the temperature around it. Rather, if you've got a thermostat at home, and almost all of us have, you set the thermostat at a fixed point, and then circumstances are controlled by the thermostat, if it works properly and your central heating is good. Do you see the point? Am I a thermometer? Or am I a thermostat? Have I learned the secret of being content?